God, we just recognize that your word is, uh, is precious. That your word is more precious than gold. Your word is sweeter than honey. And that's because your word is your primary uh, revelation to us. It's how we know you. It's how we know the work of your son, Jesus. It's how we know of his grace, his, his glory, his beauty. It's revealed to us uh, in the truth of, of your scriptures that we're about to turn to right now. But we also recognize that to hear from your word is to hear from you. And so we ask that you would come and you would speak to us by your word. We ask that you would help us to be humble and contrite, coming to your word with a, a humility that desires to be to be taught, to be instructed, to be helped, to be comforted, to be challenged, and not an arrogance that, that wants to sit um, above and, and judge and, and scrutinize, but, but wants to truly encounter you and be instructed by you. God, help us to be people that that love you and have that love displayed in the love for your word. People who are shaped by you and have that displayed by being shaped by your word. We need your spirit to come and to do that work and to point us to Christ as it happens. And so, God, we, we come as, as needy people in need of encouragement, in need of comfort, in need of spiritual refreshment, in need of a, a wake-up call from, from spiritual apathy. And we pray and ask that you would give all of those things to us as we turn now to your word. In Christ's name, Amen. James uh, five one through six. James chapter five one through six. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Some people love, 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 love what the Bible teaches about money and the poor. And they hate what the Bible teaches about other topics. Other people love what the Bible teaches about other topics. But hate what the Bible teaches about money and the poor. What's so... uh, Beautiful about the Bible and beautiful about Christianity is that the classifications that we use to categorize people don't work, really, when you come to the truth of the Bible. Because God critiques and God challenges every category and every culture that has ever been established. And here, God has really strong words to the rich. Weep and howl. The miseries that are coming upon you. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. 
We don't have to even understand this passage to just know, like, I don't want to be on the end of that. I don't want to be in that category. I don't, don't need to explain the rest. Just don't do that. And okay. Right? Sharp words. Why? To think about this, we also need to understand that Jesus, one of the topics he spoke about the most, two topics that we don't talk about very much at all, his two top topics were what? Money and hell. Those are two things he taught about the most. And Jesus talks often about money. All the time. And he says things like this. No one can serve two masters. For either they will love the one and hate the other. Or they will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Matthew 6, 24, 25. Early in the chapter, Matthew 6, 19 and 20, he says this about money, possessions, greed. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Mark 10, 24. Jesus says this after encountering uh, a rich person, a rich young ruler. He says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus, like James, speaks in very sharp, stark terms about wealth and riches. In the book of James, the whole theme of James is showing us the vital signs of a living, true faith in Jesus versus a faith in Jesus that's dead and on life support and is kind of polluted with a mixed allegiance to God and living for ourselves. And the reason James talks so sharply about money here and the reason Jesus does the same is because nothing more clearly displays whether you have a living or a dying faith than what you do with your money. That your money and how you use it and how you think about it reveals the state of your faith and your soul. If you look at this text, we're going to walk through and see a couple of, a couple of things. But the first thing we have to see is, one, James is talking to very specific people, right? In verse 1, who does he say? He says, come now, you what? You're rich. Ooh, we're, we're ready. That, seriously, you guys are ready. That was really good. That was really good. Usually it's only like one person. That was great. We're dialed in. Okay, I'm ready. All right, let me step my game up here. You guys are ready. Okay. Um, yeah, come now, you rich, right? So he's, he's talking very specifically to rich People, right? Remember what we saw last week um, in the in the last section of chapter four. He was speaking to merchants specifically, originally, right? Who who thought they were going to set up their business here and do this next year and make all this money? And and James challenged them by saying, "You can't plan your life in self sufficiency based on your will. You need to live in dependence to Jesus' will. Have your plans, but hold them in pencil under Jesus' will, not in ink under your own will." Right? So James is give, giving this section about talking to people who, who are wealthy and think they're self-sufficient. But now he's speaking specifically to rich people. And he says this, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. They're going to be evidence against you. James is speaking in the language of judgment. 
miseries that are coming upon you. He's talking about the day of standing accountable for our lives before God. And he's saying, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, they're corroded. And James is making this point in verse 1 and 2. The things that his audience have treated as lasting and enduring are being exposed as temporary. So the things that these rich people have lived their lives as if this is the most precious thing, this is the thing that will endure, this is what matters most, they're being exposed as being temporal. They're being exposed as things that rot, as things that mold, as things that decay, as things that will not provide what those people are truly seeking from them. He's showing us this, the deceitfulness of money, the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness of materialism. That's his point in verses 1 and 2. We think about how this relates to a, to a, a, a living faith that is vibrant and active versus a, a faith that is, that is intermingled with a, a love for God, but then divided into a, a love of other things in, the, in a wrong place above God, right? These, these verses show us that a, a living faith sees riches and materials and goods. A living faith sees those things with the eyes of faith, with an understanding that, that these things are fine in and of themselves, but they can't provide ultimate things. But a faith that James would call is double-minded or, or uh, is empty or is dying or is on life support, that person sees riches as here and now and treats them with an enduring value that they just don't have. It's the deceitfulness of riches. And here's how we know when riches are deceitful. Here's how we know this is happening in our lives. When we start to attach our security and our comfort to our bank accounts. When we start to attach our security and our comfort to the size of our salary. When we start to attach our security and our comfort to the scope of the retirement plan. Right? When we start to attach our security and our comfort to the things and possessions that we own, even though deep down we know that they break, that they, that they rust, that they're not going to last. We, we, we get kind of duped, seduced by the deceitfulness of riches, right? It happens, to, it happens to all of us. Think, think about this. If somebody were to come to you tomorrow morning and say, guess what? I'm going to add two zeros to the end of your bank account. And just kind of move that thing a couple decimal points, right? Yeah, you're like, hey, you can be my portfolio manager. You're like, yeah, let's continue to do that. Every Monday, let's do that, right? Imagine someone were to do that. Wouldn't you just walk differently? Like, let's just be honest, right? Wouldn't you just walk a little bit different knowing, like, wow, we got two decimal movements on my account. Like, okay. Like, there's, just, there's just something in us that's going to feel a little bit more secure, a little bit. There's just going to be something different if that were to happen. It's not bad to steward your money well, to, to make money. The Bible actually encourages that, right? It has strong words for people who don't provide uh, for, for their loved ones and, and, and work hard and, and do those things. But here it's talking about the deceitfulness of riches and trusting in them in an ultimate way. And that's what's happening for these hearers, that they're trusting in riches to give them something that they can. And so James says... You're trusting in these riches. You're living for these riches. Your faith is polluted. You're corrupted by this deceitfulness of riches. And so God is giving an invitation through James for them to turn from treating money as this comfort to now turning back to Jesus. Which is why James says, weep and howl. 
Weep and Howl is an invitation. Weep and Howl is an invitation for James's hearers to turn in humble repentance and confession, simply to say, God, I have loved money. I've trusted in my things more than you. I want to turn back to you. That's what it means to weep and howl. This is Old Testament language for humble repentance. There's also a wake-up call speaking of the truth that God is holy and is going to judge and hold us to account. That's what James is laying out here in verse 1. Weep and howl. Sounds like harsh words, but if you really know the Bible and you know the rest of this book and you know the truth of the gospel, any time that God calls somebody out, it's an invitation to repent. Anytime God, God rebukes or gives a stern warning, it's an act of love at the very same time. Because he's pointing out something dangerous. Sort of like a doctor pointing out a disease so that the patient can turn, be healed, and be well. Right? Think about this. We saw this in uh, James chapter 4, verse 6, that James just goes to town on, on speaking against this double-mindedness, this kind of polluted faith. But then he says, and he uses the language that we commit spiritual adultery on God by, by loving other things more than we love Jesus. But then James says this, in the same passage that he gives us a rebuke, he says this in, in 4.6, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The, the truth of, of God's character is that he's holy. He will not let anything pass, but he's also infinitely gracious, which means the moment we become humbled and turn to him, he has grace upon grace. He has more grace than there is sin in us, more grace than there is idolatry in us, more grace than there is brokenness in us if we simply humble ourselves and turn to him. This is what people don't understand. They see God speaking out against things in the scriptures clearly, but he's doing it as one who loves us and is speaking out so that we can be helped, turn, and be healed. Exactly what James is doing here. And here's why. Because if you buy into the deceitfulness of riches, you will live a life of greed and self-indulgence. So if you buy into this idea that riches endure, that riches provide things that they can't really, that material goods can comfort you in a way that really only Jesus can, if you begin to slide into this type of thinking, what gives birth out of that thinking is a life of greed and self-indulgence. That thinking leads to action that is greed and self-indulgence. This is where he goes in verses 4 and 6. Look here. 4 and 6. This is what then and, and notice behold, right? Behold is like somebody clapping and saying, hey, look, right? This is like an attention getting thing. So so notice he talks about the deceitfulness of riches in one and two. And then in four, he says, behold, he's laying out the truth. Listen up. Here it is. It's going down. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What is James saying? Well, James is pointing out how the deceitfulness of riches in 1 and 2 led to action, living that was greedy and self-indulgent. And what were they doing? What were the rich doing? They were literally holding back money from their workers. They were either not paying them at all or taking much of their wages and keeping them. 
Because they bought into the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches produces this life of greedy self-indulgence. So these rich folks that James is speaking to with their polluted faith, they buy into a lie about riches, which leads them to live in an oppressive sin, underpaying, keeping back wages from their workers. Right? I gotta, if we use our imagination, I've got to imagine instead of paying their workers, they're saying, let me get another painting in the house. Let me get another car. Let me get another vacation. Let me get another. Right? They're withholding from those that they ought to be paying. And James rebukes them harshly. James says two things are crying out against you rich folks. Here are the two things. The wages are actually crying out. Notice he says that in four, right? The wages, right? So if you're a literature person, this is a great personification, right? The wages are crying. Wages doesn't cry. Money don't, money don't cry, right? right? That, that's not how money works. But he's saying the wages are crying out and the workers are crying out because they can't eat. They can't provide for themselves. They can't care for themselves because you rich are withholding from them because you bought into the deceitfulness of money, wealth, and materialism. This language of the wages crying out is almost this language of, um, of the money that they've held back going to court, standing trial, and testifying against them. That's what he says about their, their, their gold and their silver. That's what he'll, that's what he'll do in, in, in verse 2. They'll testify against them. Because his greed has produced oppressive and self-indulgent living. Now, maybe, maybe you're thinking this, right? Get them, James. Let them have it, James. Give it to them, James. And in a sense, we ought to say that. Right? In a sense, in a, in a serious way, this text, if you have been um, put down or oppressed financially, if you've had people in power over you exert that power over you unjustly, this text should be a comfort to you. That that injustice is crying out before God. And what we see in verse 4 is that God actually hears. Right? So in, in many ways, this text, if that's you, this text really ought to comfort you. And then we also need to examine, though, this text, is it calling us out as well as James' rich hearers? We have to ask both of those questions. Because what we see here is that as the wages are crying out, as the workers are carrying out, that the Lord of hosts, this is language for God that says the God of all angel armies, the God who controls the cosmos, he hears. This is, the, this is again showing the beauty of God's character. That there's no oppression that will go unnoticed by God. He will see, hear, and does see and hear all of it, and he will hold it to account. And the, the, the account is, is the same phrases that we hear in this text that we, that we don't like. It's the, the day of slaughter. That's when God is going to judge oppression. Right? So, so notice it's, it's some of the, the truths that we don't like in our culture that are actually meant to give us comfort. And the reason sometimes this idea of God's holiness and him judging and him holding us to account, the reason we often don't like it, at least in Western culture, is because we haven't maybe dealt with a lot of oppression. Is that if you go to other cultures and other places, when they hear of God's judgment, do you know what they do over those truths? They rejoice. They praise God when they hear of his holiness, that he will judge all the nations because they've seen violence and oppression right in their backyards. 
And so they say, oh, if God is good, he must hold to account all of this wickedness. And so sometimes that can be hard for us to see, but this text is, is showing us that that's actually a good thing because these people who have been cheated, God says, no, I hear your cries. I hear your cries and I'm going to act. So be encouraged if your story includes people trampling over you, sinning against you, oppressing you, harming you, because God hears your cries and God is going to hold those actions to account. Be comforted by the holiness of God. The other truth that we have to deal with here that uh, is helpful but not initially as comforting is that uh, this text is also uh, calling us out to. You knew this was going to come, sorry. Right? So if you, if you own a business or you, ha- you manage people, right, then this has some very direct application to you that you're smart, so I'm not even going to explain. Um, but this has direct application to you. Right? But I'm, what I'll explain is how this, this is, has a secondary application to you. And here's the secondary application. This text is to you what? You, you're rich, right? We are all rich. All, all of us are rich. Even if you're barely getting by, just speaking globally, we are all, we are all rich. Right? So this text is, is, also, is also a word for us, right? I was doing this on the, the just, just try this. If you don't believe me, if you have pushback against that, Google this um, when you get home. Um, well, some of you will Google it right now, sneaky. We're like, I'm going to cross-reference this. So I'm like, no, you're not. You're playing Pokemon Go and catching, <laughs> catching that Pikachu, right? So look at the global, uh, global Wealth Index and just put in your, your salary. I put in, um, I just picked a kind of median number, uh, 50,000. 50, you make fifty thousand in a year, uh, whether you or, and partner or, or whatever, um, you, you're you're like in the top. You're in the top percentile of richest people in the world. If you make fifty thousand a year, it would take the average laborer in Ghana three hundred and twelve years to earn the same amount. You make in one month the same amount that two hundred and eighteen doctors in in uh, Kazakhstan make. Right, so, 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 I mean, I don't, there's more, many more stats, and, and, um, but, but just reality is we're rich. We're absolutely rich. And this is not to make us feel guilty. This is something that we need to steward and use in a godly way for justice and for good, not for greed. But we are absolutely rich. So then, this text has very sharp and very helpful application for us. And here's the question we need to ask. We're seeing James' word to the greedy here, to these people who even in their faith, even in their love for God, have been polluted, been deceived, seduced by the deceitfulness of riches. We need to ask ourselves this question. Does our life reflect the greedy self-indulgence that we see displayed in this text? Or does our life reflect generosity in a godly way? What does our life more, what does our life more reflect? Because what we see in verse 4 is that these rich people are greedy and self-indulgent, deceived by, by believing uh, lies that things and money can, can give and can comfort and secure in ways really only Jesus can. And they're, they bought into that lie, and, and the result of buying into that lie is this greedy living, and they're keeping back by fraud from their workers. But you can also keep back by hoarding through a lack of generosity. James would say those are the same things. 
the principle and the truth is the same. Right? The hearers of this, uh, this original audience would, would know this passage in Leviticus 19.13. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a person hired overnight. They knew this. And yet they're withholding. Right? W- what about us? What do we know about what God calls us to? With our finances, with our belongings, the warnings against living for material goods, the generosity that we are to uh, embody in light of Christ's generosity to, generosity to us. What about us? Does our life reflect a godly generosity that shows a heart that says, riches and things are great, but they don't own me? Or does our life reflect action in a heart that says, no, riches in things become my source of escape, become my source of comfort, become my source of maybe even identity. So what does our life reflect? James frames this in, a, in, the, in the, uh, the essence of justice, right? A, an, an equal treatment of people. But withholding their money is an issue of justice. I think we understand that. But do we understand all the ways in which the generosity God calls us to is also a matter of justice? That God calls us to generosity not because he just wants to see us give away stuff, but because it actually helps us and it blesses others. That we do good in the world as we steward the things that we have and the money that we get, which really is all God's, and we use it generously. We do good in the lives of people around us. Let me tell you this. If we became a more generous people, our neighborhoods and our cities would be totally different. Even if God's church in a region just woke up to a God-centered generosity, neighborhoods would look very different. People without would have things would be incredibly different. All these types of things are justice issues. Let me let me just ask you this. Right? How many people are hurting and are kept back from encouragement and life-giving relationships because a home was not open to them where someone generously said, all you need to bring is yourself. Here's a meal for you. Here's friendship for you. That's generosity. That's justice. That's extending a love for neighbor to someone. That's justice that honors God. But think, think, think about this. Right? You could apply that question to our church. How many people in our church are hurting, just waiting for somebody to bring them into their home where they can open up? Or how many people maybe in your neighborhood are lonely, maybe have no idea about the love of God, but if, they're, if they were brought into a place where they could get coffee or, or have a meal and someone would generously give of our, their time and, and $5 to buy them the double mochaccina thing or, or whatever with the leaf on top and just welcome them. Throw so those in to keep you guys awake, right? Would, would just welcome them. Think of how God would be honored and how somebody would be welcomed and reminded that they're loved because they're made in the image of God. 
Right? Think about even the generosity that God calls his, his people, calls believers to, of, of giving to the local church, that that, that that helps the gospel go out. That's a justice issue so people can hear of the love of God that's offered to them in Jesus. Those are all justice issues tied to how we view our money and how we view our things. So if you hear those things and you see signs in your life where, wow, God, you're actually making me generous in a Jesus-centered way, then be encouraged. That's God's grace. That's not natural to you. Right? That's not natural to us. Right? So if you see that happening in your life, be encouraged. Thank God for that. But if you see places where you're withholding, you see the, the root of the deceitfulness of riches, right? Also be encouraged because God is going to use this as an opportunity to free you from that. Um, I'm going to say this too. You guys won't like me for saying this. Withholding wages. This was an interesting text because I'm like, well, none of the people in our church own, like, have workers. So I was just like, how is this going to be applied to them? Do any of you have workers? People that you pay? I knew it. Okay. I was like, no one has workers. So I was like, how are, how are people holding back wages, right? So, but I think this application is there and we see it in other texts. But, but here's the most direct application, I think, from this. Withholding money is don't download things illegally. That's like literally withholding wages from people, right? So I know so that's putting some of you out there. You're like, all my music and movies, no. I listen to the same CD from sixth grade, right? Just you're withholding wages from people from people that already have a lot of money, but you're still withholding wages from them. <laughs> you're still withholding. It's unjust, right? So in all seriousness, that, I think that actually, this actually speaks to that, right? That we're withholding wages from people when we do that. If you need the Spotify you know, tutorial, let me know. Instead of withholding wages, you can give them half a penny every time you listen. <laughs> so think, right? Is your life marked more by this godly, Jesus-centered generosity? Or do you see these signs of the deceitfulness of riches kind of clawing their way into, into your heart? Now, I want to um, get, get through this quickly because culturally, right, generosity, if you're generous culturally, just speaking outside of the church, right, people love that, right? You're going you're to get fans. You're going to get likes, right? People are going to encourage that. People, generally speaking, we encourage generosity. But, but there's a difference between the generosity that is encouraged culturally and the generosity that Jesus really talks about and that James is talking about here. And it comes down to motive. It comes down to why we're being generous, right? Nobody likes to walk past, right, the Salvation Army person, right, in the wintertime when they jingle the bell when you give money, right? You don't want to be the person that walks past and there's no bell jingle, Right? And so you're kind of compelled to throw a quarter in to get the jingle and let people know. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm a good, you know, I, I did that. Right? There's often a, com- a, a, a compulsion to give out of a desire to be seen in a certain light or out of a desire to, uh, to, uh, to kind of calm a guilt. Or even think about this, this recent movement of minimalism. If anybody's kept up with that, they had the Becoming Minimalist tour that came through Davis Square. It's just this, this kind of philosophy. Um, part of it is, is by looks and style in your home. But, but it's just this philosophy of just less is better. So have less stuff, right? Wear the same clothes every day and have two shirts and give away more things, right? And, and it's this desire to be generous and be detached from material goods. So I think that's fine. That's great. Not to knock that. But the motive is, is, is a bit different than what God is calling us to here. It's not be detached from riches and be detached from goods so that it's just easier for you. It's no, be detached from these things because they're tools to use for God's glory, not substitutes for God himself. 
So there's a completely different motive. And I want you to understand that when God is calling us to generosity, God is inviting us to give so that our soul can be decluttered from the things that are going to choke out our love for God. So when God calls you to give and be generous, he's calling you to the practice of decluttering your soul and your affections from the things that are to come in and strangle your love for Jesus. That's why Jesus has such stark terms for money. Jesus isn't against money. Jesus used money to give to the poor. Jesus took money to fund his ministry. He's not against money, but he knows that money is super seductive and deceitful, and a little bit of it can just get us, right? You notice how you don't even have to have a lot of money to kind of have a swagger? It doesn't take a lot of money. Right? We know this from when we're younger and we get the first allowance. And you're like, no one can tell you anything because you got $12. <laughs> but in, you're like, $12, right? It doesn't take a lot of money to put this sense of security, comfort, identity in us that, that really is just a mirage. And here's the thing about riches as well, is that money can give you and things can give you a sense of identity and comfort. And it can be so deceiving that even as someone who loves God, you can rest upon your money in such a way that you never really know what it's like to trust in God in a circumstance. Because you're so used to the comfort of knowing, well, if everything, anything went bad, I got it all made. You're actually missing an opportunity to trust God. I want to give you some motives for generosity. One of the motives is that giving declutters your soul to experience and let your love for God flourish rather than having security and identity tied to money. The other thing that generosity allows you to do is to do things in this life that you won't be able to do in eternity. That in eternity, when God renews the world, there won't be people to be generous to with money. So let's do it now. There won't be people in need. There won't be people who are lonely. There won't be people who are hungry. There won't be people who need books. There won't be uh, ministries that need funds, right? There won't be those things. So, so let's do it now because what we do now with our generosity in godly ways actually bears fruit for the future. That there are ways that we can be generous and bless and give now that we won't be able to in the future, but that will bear fruit into the future. One of my favorite movies is uh, The Dark Knight Rises. Um, and there's a scene where they're in the ballroom and they're dancing and Catwoman is there. And uh, she's like, a storm is coming. Does anybody know what, know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, I'm like, no, I have no idea. Okay. So a storm is coming. Right? She's, she's talking about uh, this uh, Bane, if you, I mean, you haven't seen it by now, there's no hoping you, right? But <laughs> Bane is coming, and, and he's just kind of a one-of-a-kind villain, and it's just going to be, it's just going to be this chaos. It's just going to be something that, that we've, we've never seen before. And in, in a way, this passage has that type of future flavor to it, right? Look, look, verse five: you're, you're fattening your hearts for a day of slaughter. James is saying that these rich folks, their their love of money, their seduction by greed and materialism, they're they're just they're just 
preparing themselves for, for God's judgment. That they've been unjust and they've been oppressive to those that they're actually supposed to help. That they love money more than people. That they love money more than God. That they've lived for, for God and for themselves over and above God and, and others. You see, and he's, he's trying to warn them. He's trying to say, the judgment's coming. A day of accountability is coming. Turn. But again, this word of warning is also a word of love and mercy. This message of rebuke from God is also a message to return to God. It's not a warning that says, you had your chance, you're done. It's a warning that says, come home. Come receive grace. It's the same thing for us as well. If you, could, if you come through this passage, and you can come through it unscathed, unchallenged, then praise God for what he's doing in your life and how Christ is working in your, in your heart. That's awesome. If you come to this text like me and you're like, man, this text has got teeth that are biting into me and challenging me, then we get to turn and receive grace. So have you fallen for the riches, for the deceitfulness of riches? Is your life marked more by self-preservation than Jesus-centered generosity? Is your faith in Jesus evident in every area of your life, minus your things and your money? Right? If, if that's the case, right, then like in verse 4, just as the wages took the trial stand against the rich, our finances will tra- take the trial stand against us and condemn us. If we have displayed that we love our money and our things more than God and his people. The good news of comfort, though, from this text and from the truth of the Bible is that Jesus, through Jesus, our day on the trial, right? This this future date of accountability that James is so clearly pointing to with his language. Our day on the trial stand through Jesus has already happened. If you trust Jesus, your day on on trial, your day of of accountability before God has already happened. And Jesus has already stood in your place and Jesus has already taken your charge and Jesus has already paid the debt for your greed and paid the debt for the ways in which you've loved money above and against God and the ways in which you preserve self rather than being generous to others. Jesus has already paid all of that. He's taken every drop, every ounce of that judgment and accountability upon himself through his death on the cross. So that means you can come to this text and you can let it challenge you. You can let it take a chunk of flesh out of you. You can let it rebuke you. But you know that God's grace and love is still rich and endless for you. And it's rich and endless for you even if you have yet to trust Jesus and he's inviting you to that. When our greed cried out for our judgment, God's grace was louder. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. And this is the way we're restored to God, but this is also the secret to generosity. When we see that Jesus has given it all for us when judgment was deserved, we'll become generous like Jesus. The key to you not clinging to your stuff and your money is not a matter of you understanding or saving better or better financial planning. That stuff is great and godly and good. But the real key is the heart level realization That money isn't everything. Things aren't everything. Jesus is everything. 
And when you see that Jesus is everything, your grip on money and things will loosen. And you'll begin to use those things in a way that honors Jesus and helps others. And guess what? You'll begin to like it. Jesus' words in Acts when he says it's more blessed to give than to receive. There's a lot of passages in the Bible that people have a hard time with. That's one on the surface. You're like, what? More blessed to give than to receive. When you give something, you don't have it anymore. Right? How is that possible? But when we understand on the heart level who Christ is, what it means to be known by him, then that reality takes root in us. Jesus himself, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, says that though he was rich in heavenly glory, he became poor for our sake by becoming human, by dying, so that by his poverty we might become rich. That Jesus, though he had everything, laid it all down in generosity to restore us to God, to pay for our sins, to reunite us to our creator. He became low so that we could go high. He became poor so that we could be rich. And when this gospel takes root in us by faith, we begin to do the very opposite of these rich folks in James 5, and we begin to walk in the generosity of our Savior. So has the gospel come upon you in that way? Maybe it's come upon you in every other area of your life, but it hasn't yet touched your things, or your bank statement, or the way that you think about money. Has the gospel come into your life in that type of power? If it hasn't, God is ready and able to bring Christ to bear upon that part of your life as well. Let's pray.